Hi, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. If you like today's episode, please follow me at narctroopers.com. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Survivor Tina, who is 38 months out of a year, uh, multiple year-long relationship with a disordered partner with a cluster B disorder. And as we all know, there's always aftermath of these relationships. She suffers from anxiety, obsessive ruminations and intrusive thoughts, insomnia, and depression. So uh, welcome, Tina. Thank you. Good evening. How are you? I am well. Um, So I think we're going to focus on a few things that are common to all people who are in recovery uh, after they were either discarded or after they had the courage to leave one of these relationships. And um, we're going to hear your story and, and hopefully learn some things that will help us from your experience about how you're navigating through this 30 mo- 38 months out. So um, let's begin by talking about um, these relationships with these people, that it's like a predictable cycle, beginning with the golden period or seduction, whatever we want to call it, infatuation, ideation stage, and then devaluation, and then ending with the third stage, which is the discard or the escape. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the different cycles uh, of your relationship? Yes. So I was in a long distance relationship. Um, I met the gentleman online. Um, we met a few weeks later. Um, we had already talked much on the phone. Um, it ended up to be that I was a racial justice advocate. I was doing a lot of things in the community. Um, a lot of the love bombing or the golden stage was definitely a mirror of what I was doing. Um, But of course I saw it as that power couple dynamic duo, um, you know, work against the world and change it together. Um, That was the golden period and how I would have described it looking back Mm -hmm. because it seemed like everything I was interested in or everything that I stood for is also what he was interested in and also what he stood for. Um, And I think another piece of my puzzle is that I was involved in an interracial relationship. So as a racial justice advocate and him a black man in America, I really did see him as a victim and I you know was working hard to change those things for individuals of color to start with and so why not even work harder to make a difference with the person you love who is also that victim absolutely Um, and you know a lot of times that um feeling of that this is your soulmate, that you just have such uh, synchronicity, you're in step with each other, so much in common is actually them studying you, mirroring you, adopting your habits and mannerisms and characteristics and personality traits and claiming them for themselves in that chameleon shapeshifter kind of way. So 
uh, it's not just <laughs> by accident that it no, felt it so perfect. Um, there's a reason why after, that's that way. After that golden period, um, it was almost a year and a half before we actually uh, moved in together in the same city. And he he moved here and moved in um, together with me um, in a house. And I was already um, paying all the bills, um, you know, at my old place. And I was already paying the bills for him in his place out of town. And so one of the things is he wasn't working. And one of the things that he capitalized on greatly during um, the golden period was getting a job where he was when he was really going to move here didn't make sense. And of course he also had a lot of drama and issues where he was. Could I ask and you this about how long was it uh, before the second stage devaluation kicked in? And what did that look like? Oh my goodness. When the second stage kicked in, it was, it was almost immediate. So from basically October 14 until May of um, 16, um, definitely the golden period. From May of 16, when he moved here, the table flipped almost immediately um, upon us living together. Mm -hmm. um, he was gone all the time. Um, he was gone all night. Um, there were things that he was doing that were related to the business, quote, so to speak. And if I questioned anything or asked any, anything, um, he would blow up. Um, there was a lot of rage, a lot of um, unpredictability of his mood. Um, the golden period that I thought would, would increase once we were actually together in the same town it decreased quickly mm -hmm. and that was one of the things that never really made any sense to me at the time because when I was the most happiest because we were finally together in the same city in the same house it was actually the beginning of the worst period right and so how long was it after that before uh it ended um, from May of 16 until January of 18, when I discarded him. Okay. So, so let me ask you this, you know, there's three primary reasons why narcissists and sometimes, uh, your sociopath or psychopath, why they, uh, get into relationships and target the people. Number one, they're seeking fuel or supply. Number two, they're trying to uh, take your character traits and personality traits and make them their own. And number three, residual benefits, which would be money, um, sex, power, connections, networking, jobs, things, things along that line. Um, so in the context of those three things, the fuel, the traits, and the benefits, um, how, how evident were these things to you at the time that that's what was happening, that he, that's what he was there for? Were you aware at all of, of that? No. Um, in 
in the beginning, <clears throat> I felt like I was helping the person I love survive until we could get together in the same city, in the same house, because um, he had been married and divorced, and there had been a lot of drama and all of that, and I didn't really understand all of that. Um, I accepted it as truth when he told it. Um, over time, though, once we moved in together, um, I could see patterns of behavior with a lot of past um, people he would still interact with, even though he would talk about them, mm -hmm. against them, he would still interact with them. And that also didn't make sense to me. Um, and, of course, he had always these, you know, you know, God asks you to forgive, give people a second chance, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And when I look back now, I realize that I was really nothing more than a financial supply, along with my intellectual and social um, connections. I've lived in the town where I live now all my life. I have um, a past where my brother was in the music business, so I had a lot of contact and I had an interest in that world, and that was the world that he wanted to capitalize on. And when he was capitalizing on it, it was all for himself under the guise of what we could do together as a dynamic duo and power couple. And he was gaining financially before he ever came to my city because, again, the plan was for him to come. And so while he was dealing with drama down there, he found it difficult to work. When he got up here, um, it was the same drama. It was the same uh, reasons why he couldn't work there. And where are um, you? Where, where are you now? I'm actually in Kentucky. 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 Okay. I, um, I, I, I know that with this, there's a lot of vocabulary that comes with it. Um, that is indicative, just specific to narcissists and psychopaths and things like this. Triangulation, gaslighting, word salad, blame shifting, mirroring the list goes on and on there's there's probably 50 words that are specific to uh this phenomena this whole narcissistic uh psychopathic cluster b experience uh when i heard your story one of the things that stuck out to me the most was the triangulation that was happening within your own home involving another person and uh i just want to say while these things are happening, it is so uh, easy to just not see the, the forest for the trees, so to speak. You're in the middle of it, and you don't realize how absolutely crazy it is when it's happening. And then when you look back at it, it you think, wow, <laughs> is that what really happened? Because that's crazy. So um, can you talk a little bit about that triangulation what that was and what that looked like for you? Yes. So for me in, in, in the relationship that I was in, um, he moved here and within a few months, he wanted a friend of his to come visit. And this was a female friend. And she was supposedly the, the co-host on the radio show that was part of the business. Um, he told me he had known her for several years. She had gone through a difficult time. Um, she had a son who was in prison. 
and I had had a, a relative that was in prison, and therefore I could probably guide her and help her, and I would be a good mentor and a good role model. She wanted to come here and get her life together, and she came to visit, and it was an extremely difficult um, visit, and I could sense that something wasn't right, but again, if I questioned, then I was the jealous, emotional one. Right. And of course, being, you know, being jealous in a brand new relationship, living together for the first time, it was normal. Mm-hmm. But I was being accused of so many things that are not who I am. And so you almost work doubly hard to prove them wrong, but no matter what you do, you prove them right. And so, um, she came for a visit. It was horrible. Um, after the visit ended, then the true agenda was that, um, she needed a place to live and that I had made it difficult. Um, and so the badgering started. And so I finally, to relieve some of the anxiety and the pressure, and of course, to prove him wrong, not right, um, about who I was, which was a common thread in our relationship, me always proving uh, myself not to be what he said, um, she moved in. Right. And now that's the... What the... Yeah. And once she moved in, um, again, the table kept flipping and getting worse. And I, you know, much of what I knew about her had actually been a lie, but I didn't know it at the time. She and I have spoken since that time. And basically we were both being victimized um, in different ways um, for different purposes and, um, you know, we, we both suffered the same abuse um, in the same house um, in different ways by the same abuser. So that's and a fascinating been, thing to think that you were living there with another woman, with this man, and that both of you were able to do that, even though it wasn't what you wanted to do. You ended up doing it anyway. I have often thought that people with these cluster B disorders, like the narcissist or psychopath, have some kind of magic powers or they're wizards or something because I, I, I don't know how they get us to do things and push us so far beyond our boundaries. They push us so far beyond anything that we would ever have dreamed of ever crossing that that line we cross the line mm -hmm. and it's part of what stays with us because after everything is over should you escape or be discarded what is left over is that somehow why didn't you see it why did you go along with it exactly I mean, we don't need we don't need society to blame us because blaming ourselves becomes a daily analysis chore um i have spent um as you mentioned the ruminating thoughts i have spent probably every moment um since the discard and i discarded him 
but I have spent time every day trying to figure out how did I miss what I missed? Why didn't I see what I saw? Even when I saw it, I excused it. When I excused it, I was waiting for it to get to go back to that golden love bomb stage. I never could figure out why the person I met in the beginning was so different from the person I got rid of at the end. And all the craziness in between I wanted to make sense of it, and I never have been able to. And letting go of something you can't make sense of and you blame yourself for to some degree is probably one of the most difficult things left behind after this kind of relationship. Well, they say that with the narcissist, there is no closure. They, um, there was something I read recently said that in most healthy relationships at the end you sever it it's a clean cut and that with the narcissist or the psychopath that at the end it's like they have hacked that relationship into pieces so that there's instead of a clean cut it's like this jagged hacksaw version of a separation that is you're you're still hemorrhaging and bleeding and there's just this ugly wound that is it's not uh clean and tidy and it's not something that you can just wrap it up and move on you're you're decimated you're you're destroyed uh, because it not only makes you doubt yourself um other people who don't understand what has happened they doubt you they think well is this yeah. person crazy or is this person the narcissist or is this person just uh, I know yeah yeah because they don't understand the dynamics uh of what has happened here what has transpired and if you told them they probably wouldn't believe it because it just sounds so crazy a lot of times I've read so much about how the victim usually comes off looking like the one that is unhinged, uh, the crazy maker, the one that's got the problem where, uh, and they do that on purpose and, and have quite fun, a lot of fun with that. I would imagine. Um, well, in my relationship, one of the things that he also like to capitalize on or use as a manipulation manipulation tactic is the court system. So that has been something that I have endured for quite some time. Um, from the very beginning of our relationship, even before um, and during the love bombing, he was a victim of the legal system for his ex-relationship. Mm -hmm. And over time, I saw little inklings of that same behavior with others. And of course, then I became the target of a lot of legal processes once things were over between us as well. So the legal system um, is definitely something he likes to play. Yes, it's a tool to achieve his mm -hmm. ends. Um, so I would like to devote a little bit of our time talking about, um, uh, your courage to leave the relationship. You know, I was not able to do that. I stayed for 15 years long after I knew that there was something seriously wrong. And 
long after I had started the, the being devalued. Um, you know, I, I think I even said to myself, you know, I, even if he kills me, uh, I have to stay as if it weren't even a choice, like there were no other option. Um, and I still now for me, it's 22 months out. You're a little bit ahead of me with your 38 months out, but to all the listeners, you know, that you're thinking, look at these two ladies They're, They have like two, three years under their belts away from this person. Why don't they just move on? Why, what is the problem? And I want to uh, talk a little bit about the trauma, the PTSD, the, and what do we do about that? Because in a normal relationship by now at 22 months or 38 months, we would be done and starting a new life and going out and meeting people and maybe having a new relationship. And, and that seems so impossible right now for so many reasons. What are you doing? Like what kind of trauma PTSD um, have you had since you took that bold move to, to leave and what are you doing to conquer that? Well, as I, um, as I discarded him, um, I started actually, um, I guess, moving away from the isolation and the silence. So I started using my voice to first speak to friends about what was happening. And they would say, that's crazy. And I would say, I know. And then another month would go by. <laughs> okay. And finally, I realized that not only was he using me financially and using me up emotionally and mentally and intellectually and socially, um, and of course, by that time, there was a lot of verbal abuse and a lot of absence. And I realized that my anxiety was lessened when he was gone. And it was definitely increased, heightened when he was home. And so um, I finally got the strength to cut him off financially, which that, that increased his escalation in rage. At the same time, I realized that not only was he using me, but he was using me to game other women and entice them into the same tangled web of deceit. And so I thought to myself, you know, it is one thing to screw me over, but you're not going to use me to screw over other people. And that's what I started to see is that I was part of the game that he was using to game other people. So, call it moral compass, call it, mm-hmm. call it his own sick way of triangulation. Whereas I became the one triangling with him, and I—that's when I said, "That's it. I, I'm, I did, I'm done." And so I cut him off financially, and about a month later, it blew up. And um, for me, it, it it escalated to that point. Um, since then, I mean, I have insomnia. Um, I still have the ruminating thoughts. One of the ways that I'm dealing with it is I've attended some trauma survivor groups, um, some in person, some online, partially because for me, um, sharing my story 
Um, it makes sense to me to use my voice to share with others so that either they can heal or they can begin to see. I have had, I am very, very public on my page, um, personal page on Facebook, um, on Instagram, and I've had many, many people reach out to me and say, um, and these have been strangers as well as friends that have said, oh my God, I think that this is what I'm going through. Exactly, exactly. Same thing here. You know, yeah. uh, 22 months ago, it never crossed my mind to do what I'm doing now with podcasts and articles and a website and video vlogs and interviews and all of that never crossed my mind. And uh, some people said, how can you tell your personal uh, business to the world? You know, isn't, aren't you ashamed? Isn't there shame? Isn't there stigma attached to that about how people will judge you maybe at work or future people that you might meet or whatever. And I said, you know, the shame and the stigma is not mine. You know, there is no, this, this, this is, we have been enmeshed with a person with mental health uh, impairment and mental health is something that, that our society for some reason, they don't feel comfortable talking about, but it needs to be spoken and these relationships with this type of disordered person needs to be named and have a light put on it so that the whole world knows and if that requires our stories so be it they're cautionary tales you know yeah and so for me i mean speaking about my story and sharing it and even some of the most intimate details of being in an interracial relationship um, you know, and and dealing with it as a white woman and a and a black man, I've had to separate um, the fact that he he is a narcissistic sociopath first and a black man second. He uses being a black man as a victim in America, which is very true fact, but he uses it in a way to where he, himself is the only victim that needs to be helped by what you do and so um community work became an issue because i wasn't at home um i wasn't at home uh to pay for something or do something or to make something easier for him that was an issue um and yet i was doing things out in the community that would ultimately help um him as a victim in America. So mm-hmm. that that was all that ball of confusion is something that I've really had to wrestle with to get back to my racial justice advocacy and now survivor advocacy work. Yes, the survivor advocacy work is so critical. Have um let me ask you this. Have you had any experiences with traditional therapists or counseling or the church or because a lot of people go to go, to, they seek that, and and there's some problems with that. I did, I did. I had a, um, a therapist um, for a while. Um, you know, financial abuse was real, so it was difficult to maintain. At the same time, I don't believe that a lot of individuals that are in therapy have necessarily had the extensive 
um, experiences and or knowledge of narcissism. I mean, I feel like I basically dated a guy, fell in love, broke up, and along the way got a degree in psychology that I didn't expect. <laughs> exactly. Because I, I've had yes. to make sense of my own uh, nightmare. Mm -hmm. I think everybody feels that way that's been through this. And I just want to put that out there to listeners. Uh, there's a lot of therapists that are very effective, highly trained, but not in this niche area. And there are a lot of church, uh, church help available, but they do not know what this is and they cannot help you. I mean, it's great to have prayer and all of that. I'm a firm believer in it. But you need to get help from people who know what this is. Mm-hmm. People who have experienced, I have, I have had more success understanding and healing and moving on from by sharing with people my story and hearing their story and realizing that I am not alone, that it was not me, and that um, making sense of it may not be something I'm ever able to do. And letting go and making no contact. Yes, um, no contact. Are probably the only successful things mm-hmm. that I have found. Yes, it's um, very validating to turn to others yeah. and hear that and, and then just cut it off. Okay, we've got about less than a minute. Would you like to tell us how listeners can contact you and what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. So um, I am helping other survivors by helping them to design a piece of jewelry that will serve as a tangible reminder of their healing. And by that, I mean, I help them design it. And then I find an angel sponsor to pay for the piece. And then I work behind the scenes to connect the survivor with the angel, because often it is a woman or a man who has himself or herself been through this experience and no one better to help you through this experience than a So one of the most important aspects of my endeavor is for the survivor to control and design a piece that speaks only to them so that it serves as a tangible reminder. And then I work to connect them with an angel sponsor who pays for the piece and then they can um, share their stories sometimes anonymously. Um, I work behind the scenes to connect the survivor and the angel. My endeavor is called 1111 messages of hope from angels. I have a Facebook group that's private and I also have a Facebook business page. Um, And my name is um, Tina M. Durbin on Facebook and you can connect with me there and I'm Tina Real R-E-E-L 1111 on Instagram so you are welcome to find me in any of those places well Tina that's awesome that you have leveraged your experience into something that's healing and that's going to help others I can't tell you how many people I meet who end up doing the same it's almost as if If when you're in relationships with the narcissist, sociopath, or psychopath, if you survive it and come out of it, uh, at the end of that somewhere, there's, you're compelled to give back, to help others, to make their journey to recovery, uh, a little easier to, 
to validate them and let them know that their suffering is not just insanity, that it's very real and that we have experienced the exact same thing. And the strangest well, thing, right? Are, it's like textbook. Doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's become your purpose. Um, because a future goal for me is also a podcast um, with survivor stories from their pieces of jewelry. That would be so awesome. I, I know we're all would love to hear that and we're looking forward to to what thank you're you. going to do next. And uh, I just want to thank you for being here today. And I hope that people will reach out and, and let's all just think of ways that we can uh, help each other. I guarantee you there's healing through helping others. That's why I write and why I do this. And that's why Tina is doing her project that she has come up with, which is brilliant. And uh, these are all giving people voices and validation that they need very much as they go through this. Right. And uh, I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you so so much. much. Mm -hmm. And for all everyone else, uh, tune back in for our next episode. We will have more uh, education, resources, support, modalities, and interviews with people like Tina. Okay. Well, thank you, Tina. And um, we'll be seeing y'all soon. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.